You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Rachel Harrison. Rachel has taken the horror genre by storm. Her debut novel, The Return, was praised by readers and reviewers, was called Marvelous by the New York Times, which is very high praise, was a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a First Novel. Then in her highly anticipated sophomore novel, Cackle, Harrison delivered a clever and splendidly witchy look at women's relationships and self-empowerment that was held a must-read by the USA Today, Elle, Bustle, BuzzFeed, and more. And now Rachel is back with a new novel to get you into the Halloween spirit. Such Sharp Teeth is a wildly witty and razor-sharp horror novel about a, about a young woman in need of a transformation who finds herself in touch with the animal inside. And joining me today to talk about that and so much more is Rachel Harrison. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Rachel. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, I can't wait to dig into your book. But before we dig into your book, I think we have to dig into you a little bit. Um, and pardon that phrase. But uh, I always ask people as we begin these um, where their story begins. So Rachel, tell me, where does your story as an author begin? So I was always writing stories. I used to, I was writing before I could write. I would like dictate to my mother before I could physically write stories that I wanted to tell. Um, and there are a lot, a lot of like scratch, chicken scratch books in the, in a box somewhere in the basement of uh, my mother's house. But professionally, professionally it's hard to like I still don't consider myself professional even though I have books come out um I studied screenwriting in college and so I was pursuing that and then after I graduated I was working in uh tv but like behind the scenes and then I you know worked in publishing and then um, like working in contracts. So not the writing, not the creative part. Um, and then I worked at a big bank. So definitely not creative. But while I was at the bank uh, was really kind of when I found my way back to the horror genre and wrote the draft of the return um, and took that out on submission. And uh, from there, that's how I got to where I am here. So um, kind of a long sprawling interesting not a straight line but never is really if if we were to go like it's your mother's house and find that box of stories would they be horror stories what kind of stories would be in there they'd be very dark so it's like 
somebody always died, but I think that's because in Disney movies, like in fairy tales, somebody always died. Um, but I was very dramatic child. So they would be pretty dark and joyless and grim. So I don't know if they'd be like horror horror where there'd be ghosts and monsters, but some there would be some kind of strife. <laughs> like I was like four and, and very angsty. So do you remember the name of any of those? I don't. I don't. They probably the titles were probably terrible because I'm still bad at titles. So <laughs> uh i would like to think that i didn't lose that in youth i've just never been good at titles yeah so it sounds like you had you know kind of a a, a not definitely not a linear career to becoming a published author um but when you were taking that first book out and you were submitting it what was that process like how did how did how did that go so i had an interesting uh interesting way of getting published so i'd been writing throughout my 20s while i was working these jobs um trying to like work on my prose because I came from a screenwriting background and and figure out kind of what what exactly I wanted to do. I'd written some short stories. Um, but once I had, and I'd written drafts of novels, but I never, didn't feel confident in them. Um, not until the return was when I, like, I finished that draft and I was like, okay, like this feels special. This feels like I found what I want to be doing and where I want to sit. And um so I had it all ready and I like came up with like a spreadsheet of agents I wanted to query. And then there's a Twitter pitch contest called Pit Dark and it's coming up. I think it's like next week. They do it um, in every October and in May. And I was kind of like waffling if I wanted to do it because I kind of had my mind set on, well, you write a query letter and then you query your agents. And um, But last minute I was like, I'm just going to do it. And so you tweet out pitches for your novel and if an agent likes it that means they want you to submit to them and so I took a day off work and I played hooky and I did it and I got some agent interest and that's actually how I found my agent so the Twitter pitch contest was on Thursday and then um on Sunday my agent had read it and emailed my future agent had read the draft emailed me and said do you want to meet and I was living in the city at the time. So we went and met up. And um, because I had done a lot of research, I kind of knew exactly what I was looking for. And I knew that she and I were kind of a perfect fit. And so I went with her and then we went out on submission like two weeks later. Um, and then the book sold shortly before, like the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. So it was like, super quick. It was like all my twenties kind of in pursuit of, of writing. And then like, it just, it was a long, long slog. And then all of a sudden it just like happened very fast. So it was strange, but I, I, I tell people like, if, if I was like, no, don't, if I talk myself out of doing the Twitter pitch contest, I wouldn't be sitting here because that was four years ago. And now like my third book just came out. So I always tell people, you know, shoot your shot if you're if you're pursuing writing. Yeah. I mean, just a few observations to have about what you just said. Number one, um, positive things can come up Twitter because yeah. I, I don't think that happens all the time. <laughs> Imagine, <right? laughs> yeah. You know, who would have thought? Uh, so that's one thing. But number two, there really are no overnight successes. Um, you know, even though, you know, yours came fast after, um, you know, finding the agent, it, it, it getting picked up. Um, and now you're three books in, 
but there was a long period of time before that. Yeah. Um, you know, that I certainly wouldn't, I'm sure you, you'd probably be offended if somebody said, Hey, she's an overnight success. Yeah. I, well, I think it's easy to have certain perceptions of, you know, people's careers from the outside and, you know, it's, if you only gain so much off social media and interviews and things like that, but yeah, um, it was, you know, seven years at least of writing every day and trying to improve my, improve my writing and, um, submitting stories to places and getting rejections and, um, you know, a lot of like work and uncertainty of, is this ever going to work out? Um, so I think a lot of writing is persistence. And I tell people that because it can feel like a lot of it is just you alone and <laughs> like alone with your computer until it isn't. So, right. Right. Um, and then at some point it becomes collaborative when you're, yeah. I imagine when you're going through the editing process, even working with your agent, um, taking notes and things like that. Yeah, it does become collaborative, which I think is, is strange when you're so used to just being like, when some, the first time somebody like talks about your characters back to you, you're like, wait, you know them? <laughs> How do you know them? It's very surreal. You know, one thing I'm curious about, um, I've talked to a lot of authors whose work, you know, was fortunate enough to get picked up, optioned by a studio. Um, and then they tell me, you know, just how hard it is to go from thinking, you know, from from their novelization to a screenplay. You um, kind of did the opposite because you had a degree in or you studied screenwriting um, and now you're a novelist. Did that help you at all or did that th make things more challenging for you? I think it made things more challenging in terms of, I mean, it's easy for me to like be like, it was challenging in the ways because you feel the challenges and you don't feel the advantages. Um, but I had really weak prose when I started writing because I was always thinking of like log lines, like, well, what if this story is like, um, you know, I, off the top of my head this is like the log line for alien but like jaws in space like I was always thinking like very high concept and when I would sit down to write something I'd be writing based on this concept but I wasn't taking care of like on a sentence level so in that way because in most screenplays you're not really thinking about like I'm gonna write a beautiful sentence you're thinking about dialogue and story and and setting and um you can write beautiful language in screenplays but it's not at the forefront of your mind. Um, and it's not really the vehicle which you tell the story, it's more through dialogue um, and what what is and isn't on the page. And so in that way, it was a struggle, but my dialogue, like I had like dialogue was easy for me. Character kind of came naturally to me coming from a screenwriting background and then it's very present in the return where there's, there's a clear three act structure where there's like the inciting incident and then like the act two and then they're in the hotel and this is the climax. So in that way, like there's some tools that you can take in that are helpful, um, but it's, it's just totally different mediums. It's like painting with oils or painting with watercolor. Um, it's different. Uh, and like, I, I've had people be like, well, would you adapt your own work or would you go back to writing screenplays? I'm like, I would need to kind of 
teach myself again or immerse myself back in that world because I haven't been in it for so long. You know, it's a muscle that you should exercise and <laughs> have an exercise in a while. <laughs> yeah, not necessarily like riding a bike. Um, no, it is something that takes practice. Um, what drew you to the horror genre? I think so. I have like a um, I have a very like rom com relationship with horror where. Uh, it's always been in my life, but I didn't really know that we were meant to be together until I was older. <laughs> um, <laughs> then we, re I returned to it and we, we found each other. Um, but I was always, I'm very easily frightened. And so when I was a kid, I would have very strong visceral reactions to horror. And so I was like, I don't like this. Like, I don't like horror. I don't like to be scared. I don't like this experience. And then as I got older, and when I was in college, I, in my screenwriting club, there was a horror screenwriting contest and I wanted to enter the contest. So I kind of re-immersed myself in the genre. And I was like, oh, actually like one, I really love this. And two, there's a lot of conflict there and conflict is tough in writing. You'd think like, oh, it would come easy, but to have a lot of conflict, which really pushes the story forward and makes it interesting is hard it's harder to do without a monster. <laughs> it gets harder to do without that, like, like out crazy outside force. And so in some ways it made writing easier and it definitely made writing more fun. And the more I kind of like watched horror films and read more horror books, I was like, oh yeah, like, of course you love this. Like you love Shirley Jackson. And like, uh, so I think We'd been in love the whole time. I just didn't know it. I had to like find my way back to horror. Right. You needed a, your own meat, meat cute for, yeah. uh, for, <laughs> yeah. for your love to use rom-com language. Um, well, tell me, what can you share with us about such sharp teeth? So speaking of horror and rom-coms, <laughs> such sharp teeth is about um, Rory Morris, who is a very confident, very independent woman in her late 20s who um, returns to her hometown to be with her sister, Scarlett, her identical twin sister, who is pregnant and recently um, estranged from her longtime partner. So Rory comes back to offer emotional support. And while she is home, she runs into Ian, her childhood friend who always had a crush on her, but Rory wasn't sure about him. But now she's kind of feeling a spark. And after seeing him again, she's driving home and she hits an animal with her car. And when she gets out to investigate, she's attacked and begins to undergo transformation. And it's a lot of body horror, part rom-com, and it is a werewolf book. It's Ooh. not a spoiler. It says it on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as, as I was kind of doing my research on it, um, I, I had the thought that werewolves don't get maybe the attention they deserve in the genre. Um, you know, it's all about vampires, right? I mean, you think about... I don't know. I think about just growing up, how many movies I saw because I was a huge horror movie fan. Um, how many things I saw that that dealt with vampires, right? Um, not so much werewolves, although my my daughter, Gracie, um, she's 20 now. But when she was younger, she she made me sit through watching the entire Teen Wolf series. Um, I think they rebooted it. It must have been on MTV, maybe it was. Yeah. Um, did you are you familiar with this? I was because my, I have a sister who is um, nine years younger than me. So she was like 
you know, late middle school, high school age when it came out. And it was something that we could kind of like watch together. So I think I watched the first three seasons and yeah, it was really fun. Um, but it was, it was a like, I think a lot of werewolves, it's, it's safe to go campy, which I love camp. I'm not knocking that, but, um, like a lot of werewolves, there's some like serious vampire stuff, but I think whenever there's a werewolf, it kind of goes into like, um, like more campy vibes. I mean, cause I mean, I get it. Like werewolves are kind of funny. Like there's a certain humor about it. And, um, but yeah, it was a fun series, but it was a little, it was very like teen drama. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I wasn't necessarily the target audience. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, I was thinking like, like werewolves need like, like a lobbying firm or something to go and like, say, hey, like we need more representation in in the genre i mean enough about the vampires um but uh i digress um and is there anything else you can share i, I mean i know we don't want to give too too much away here but it seems like there are some bigger themes perhaps underneath um you know it's not just a story about were werewolves is it yeah it's um it's really about like an emotional transformation and it's about you know, facing your past and um, also just what it is to exist inside a body and body control and body autonomy and um, and also vulnerability. There's a lot about rage and vulnerability, how we deal with our anger and how we can allow ourselves to be vulnerable and open up to other people, um, which can be hard when you're a monster. <laughs> Yeah, of or course. Just human. I say a lot, like I describe the book. It is a like a monster book and I wanted it to feel like a creature feature and and be fun and be gnarly. But it's really a book about being human and um, relationships, a lot about relationships, familial relationships, friendships and and uh, romantic relationships. Right. The, the monster's just there to, to kind of maybe help you tell the story on maybe a different level. Yeah. And because it's fun. <laughs> Do you have a favorite monster in, in literature or film? So it's tough because I do love werewolves, but, and I've had so much fun writing this book and I find them very interesting. Um, but like I, the way that I wanted to like write like a contemporary werewolf book, particularly a lady werewolf book, I... Now I know vampires have been done to death, but I'm like, it'd be fun to like do my own spin on a vampire. I feel like all horror novelists, they're like the vampires just like dangling there. It's like, well, what would you do with me? So maybe someday I'd write a vampire book, but I like, I'll, you know, I love a, I love a zombie. I love making up my own monsters in the return. It's kind of a vague monster that came from my imagination. Um, there's there's a ton of them out there and i think um aside from like the vampire being like how would you, how would you make what would your twist be on me i think there's other um monsters that i'd want to take on yeah as well. sure sure well i one of the things i always like to do um is get to know my authors through some pop culture questions um first Love of it. which is uh when you were growing up rachel what were some of your favorite tv shows when I was young, I mean, I grew up in the nineties. So like I would watch friends, I would watch the nanny. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think like what, like Nickelodeon shows I would like, like Rugrats. 
um, Ariel Monsters. Um, and then there was like a bunch of Disney Channel shows that I would watch that all kind of like lead together in memory, like Lizzie McGuire and things like that. Um, I like wasn't really, like I didn't really get into TV until I was like in my 20s. And that's when I like went back and watched The Sopranos and things like that. So it was very like juvenile and then very adult. Yeah. <laughs> so I, when I was old, like I kind of missed the teen shows. I didn't watch, I didn't have like a teen wolf when I was a teenager. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that there are some serious monsters in The Sopranos. That's true. <laughs> they're, I'm, they're, from, they're... I'm from New Jersey, so I kind of had to watch The Sopranos. <laughs> they're like, you can't come back here. You haven't finished the series at least once. I know. We were driving recently to MetLife Stadium um, to see a concert. And one of the first rest stops, right when you get over the GW, um, I think you're on 95, uh, the James Gandolfini rest stop. Because, you know, all the rest stops uh, are like named after yeah. somebody in Jersey. Uh, but I'm like, that was so great. The first thing I did, we passed right by it. I turned on the theme song to the Sopranos. Yes, just to, it's so good. <laughs> you have to. It's just yeah. a great, it's probably one of the greatest theme songs of all time. Maybe next to the Different Strokes theme song, but that <laughs> shows agree. a little bit before your time, perhaps. Um, well, what about music? What kind of music were you listening to when you were growing up? So when I was like very young, my mom would play the Beatles, uh, Fleetwood Mac, and then good, when I—that's a good job, mom, yeah. right there. Uh, heart, a lot of heart. When I was a teenager, uh, I was a teenager in the like early two thousands, so a lot of like emo rock. I, again, I was—I'm very angsty. I was an angsty child. I was an angsty teenager, so a lot of emo rock, um, like My Chemical Romance and The Used, which they're all becoming popular again. And I saw they're all playing a show in Las Vegas. That's called When We Were Young. And I was like, we're not young anymore. <laughs> what are you talking about? So um, that's what I was into when I was in my formative years. Formative years. Um, and then uh, if you had to pick favorite sort of monsterish horror movie and or novel, uh, what are your go-tos there? So the new Predator movie, Prey, was excellent. So that's on top of my mind. Um, Creature from the Black Lagoon is a classic. Uh, and then in terms of books, I'm trying to think of like a straight up monster book because a lot like my favorite horror novels, Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, where it's like a haunted house book. So I'm trying to think of like a straight up monster book. And of course, my mind's going blank. I'm going to turn to my bookshelf right now. Such a Pretty Smile by Christy Demeester is a good recent one. Um, and that's kind of a like a feral dog, man, creepy monster in that book. She kind of did her own take on a monster. So cool. that's one of my favorites. Now you mentioned memory. Prey. I haven't seen it yet. I am a big fan of the original movie Predator, although I wouldn't have called that necessarily horror. It was more action because there was Arnold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, he's been pushing too many pencils. Yeah. Um, but it's highly quotable. Um, I did see on Hulu, I think I might even watch it tonight. It all depends. We have a nice thunderstorm happening outside right now. So it's mm -hmm. perfect, like movie watching, horror movie watching weather. The new Hellraiser is on Hulu. They oh, kind of yeah. rebooted that. And I'm very curious to to see what they've done there. 
Yeah, I have to watch that one too. Yeah, that's I love on those, my list. Love those original ones, or at least the first two anyway. Then they, they got a little crazy when Pinhead was in outer space. But um, <laughs> getting to some more serious questions. Um, in what ways, if any, do you view writing as a form of therapy for yourself? It's my only form of therapy. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I, I find it very cathartic. And I think I, I don't really know how I think or feel about things until I've written them down. And then I discover them later. <laughs> um, what have I repressed? Um, but yeah, I think for me, that's where I explore everything. And it's it feels safe and comfortable because it's fiction still. So there's like a little bit of a buffer there. Whereas if I'm just like forced to sit down and confront things, I don't do so well. <laughs> I need that kind of buffer and I need the the fiction to escape into and then it feels it feels easier to vent or um even it's therapeutic because it's fun for me and it's an outlet so on on every level it's writing is my therapy yeah i mean along similar lines um i i do believe that we all have an inner child inside of us although sometimes we don't let them out um, what are some ways, um, if any, that you feed your inner child? Hmm. <laughs> the first thing that came to mind was snacks, <laughs> literally feeding my inner child. Um, what kind of snacks? Lately, I have a bad habit of, I'll get like a little bowl of cinnamon toast crunch, just dry. And I'll be reading a book and I'll just eat the cinnamon toast crunch like just tug it up like a little lizard so I don't get my fingers covered in cinnamon sugar while I read. Um, and I feel terrible after because I am not no longer a child and I cannot handle the sugar, but uh, it's fun while it's happening. <laughs> and I can't seem to like break the habit now because I've trained, it's like I've I've trained myself that when I sit down to read, my body's like uh, cinnamon toast crunch time. <laughs> so I have to break this habit, but that's like a childish thing that I do. Well, and I was, it feels fun. I was told by somebody who knows what they're talking about, uh, with regards to kind of how to be a healthy adult, that we only have to be a healthy adult 70% of the time. So 30% of the time we can be somewhat unhealthy. Um, so I think you're, you know, as long as you're not going over that 30% of the time <laughs> mark with your cinnamon toast, crunch lizard tongue thing <laughs> that you do when you read, I think, I think you're in okay shape. Uh, oh, I appreciate that. 30% cinnamon toast crunch. <laughs> That's right. Um, any lessons about publishing? Kind of going back to your your first book, or even second and third, because you know, the second and third are they're not always guaranteed, even if you've had a, a successful first. Um, any lessons about publishing that you feel you learned the hard way or that surprised you? Anything that surprised you about the process? So I think it's I in general tend to be a, well, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if person. And I, it's a habit I've been trying to break over the past few, ever since I kind of was confronted with the fact that I am this way. But I think I used to think like, well, I'll be happy if I get an agent or I'll be happy if I publish a book or I'll be happy if I get that next book deal or I'll be happy now it's, I'll be happy if I get an adaptation. And so the bar is always like raising. So I think for anybody in publishing, or who hopes to be published to just like 
it's not going to feel the way you think it's going to feel. And I think if I could go back in time and tell myself, like, you have to learn to be, to like, let go of expectations and to like, enjoy the wins and then just like always go back to the love of writing. Cause that's the only thing that's going to sustain you. Um, no victory. You could, I, I'm saying you could be on the New York times bestseller. I haven't been, but I imagine even if I was, it would be like, oh, well, this is never going to like, there's always a negative way to look at it. Um, and there's always a positive way to look at it. So to be able to commit to the positive and to, um, not be hard on yourself, uh, and to just always go back to the love of writing. I yeah, think would I mean, be the thing. yeah, it's easy to fall into that imposter syndrome. And you've been talking about it before when we first started, um, how sometimes it's, it's hard to identify, you know, as, as an author, but you know, you have to, you have to celebrate the wins, right? You have to, first of all, you have to recognize the wins, like what the wins are. You know, I'd say even getting interest from an agent after that Twitter contest is a win. It's actually a very big win. Um, and then getting the agent, of course, is a win and, and getting the deal. Um, but recognizing what the wins are and then celebrating them, I think is very important. Yeah. Instead of just like looking to the next thing, because I'm, I tend to be an anxious person. So I'm always like, well, what if, th what if this, what if this? And so I want the next thing because I feel like I'm going to be secure there, but there's no security. The only thing that you can really control is your, your craft and your love of the writing. So, um, yeah. And then to not be self-deprecating too, because I still get like, um, I, it's easy to be like, well, I don't think of myself as this and, you know, to be like, no, I, I, I met these goals and feel comfortable sitting in the victories yeah, yeah instead of just fantasizing about all of the failures <laughs> so stop moving those goalposts so often. yeah mm -hmm. um and last thing um if you could write a letter to your younger self you know maybe it's the the little rachel who's writing all those stories that are somewhere kind of hid away somewhere at your mom's place um what would you say to in a letter to your younger self just to to you know, either reassure her or give her some advice uh i would again, say to just learn to be content with where you're at. And if you, if you knew where you were going to be, you'd be less worried now. <laughs> um, so I think there's a, you could spend infinity worrying about what is to be instead of enjoying where you're at. Um, and so I would say relax and enjoy yourself for once. <laughs> You know, it amazes me. I ask that question of everybody and I get sometimes a wide range of answers, but more often than not, I hear people say, hey, relax, enjoy, don't worry so much. You know, it, everything's going to be okay. It's almost like we want to wish ourselves like the ability to kind of worry less, um, yeah. you know, so we can enjoy life more in the moment. But um, it's easier in retrospect to be like, it'll be fine because we already got here. Exactly. It's, it'd be more to treat the future that way, you know, to not worry so much about the future, but I haven't figured out how to do that yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we should celebrate where we are right now and where yes. we are now is uh, the publication of your third book, Such Sharp Teeth. Uh, Rachel, where can people find it? It's available in bookstores, Barnes and Noble, uh, your local indie, uh, you could indie bound, uh, bookshop.org. 
and um, yeah, wherever books are sold and wherever you like to buy your books. All right. And if people want to reach out to you, Rachel, uh, social media handles or website, do you have anything you can share with us? Uh, my website is rachel-harrison.com. I'm on Twitter at Rach Face Logic, and I'm on Instagram at Rachel Harrison's Ghost. Rachel Harrison's Ghost. Well, I'm not talking to the ghost right now, right? I'm talking to the real Rachel Harrison. Uh, or mm-hmm. maybe I don't know. <laughs> maybe I don't know. Interesting. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for letting me uncork your story. I had a lot of fun doing so. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.